Welcome. Welcome to, Welcome to Education on, on Tap. Welcome to Education on Tap, a podcast brought to you by Teach for America. Hey folks, welcome to another edition of Education on Tap. I'm your host, Aaron French. This week, we talk about Common Core. (laughs) But not in the way that you probably expect we're going to. You see, Common Core has gotten a lot of pickup on social media, in particular on Twitter using the hashtag Common Core. There's a new study out by the Consortium for Policy Research and Education, also known as CPRI, that evaluates how the conversation on Twitter affects how people are thinking and talking about Common Core. So we had two of the authors of this study on the show to talk us through the data and help us understand what it looks like out there on the interwebs. Enjoy. On the line today, we have Jonathan Supavitz of the University of Pennsylvania and Alan Daly of University of California, San Diego. And they, along with uh, Miguel de Fresno, uh, are the authors of a new study out called the Common Core, hashtag Common Core, the Common Core Project. And before we even really get started on what this study contains, uh, you guys' project is largely based in a huge website that's available for anybody to see. It's really, really cool. It's actually what really piqued my interest in wanting to interview you guys. Uh, so before we get started, John, I'd love for you to explain the site to the listeners out there. Well, first of all, the site's um, on, on the web, and it's www hashtag commoncore.com, all spelled out. And it's really a multimedia site. So it's organized like a play. And it has a prologue, four acts, and an epilogue. And it takes you from the context of the Common Core. After all, the Common Core comes from somewhere, and it didn't just get introduced from a vacuum. So it provides some context. And then it looks at the big social network of all the interactions. We actually examined 190,000 tweets from 53,000 distinct actors, and we looked at the entire big conversation as a big network. And then we hone in on the players. So who are the key players in this big conversation? And we hone in on a a subset of people who are influential in the conversation around the Common Core. And then we zoom in even further on the chatter and the the tweets and the interactions between the players. And then we have a series of podcasts, which are interviews that talk to a subset of folks about their motivations and their, um, their, their messages. And then the epilogue ends up by, by taking the big takeaways and the big messages in this whole thing. And really, I, I honestly have to say, if if there were ever an easier study to read and research, it, it was this one. Like, it, it is so engaging to go through all of that content. So definitely encourage people to take a look at it, uh, maybe even as they're listening to the episode to see what we're talking about. Um, it, Alan, I want to punt it to you real quick. What got you guys interested in the subject matter of, of the Common Core Project? This work has been... Uh, uh, both a labor of love and a really uh, interesting intellectual exercise and experience for us. Uh, it's been really some of the 
best professional work that I feel like I've done in my career. It's been really exciting because we're really trying to think about things in new and different ways. Tom and I sat down and first started talking about this in a Starbucks. In uh, We should get some uh, kickback from Starbucks, I think, on this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, we need sponsorship. So, you know, if you want yeah, to throw so, that out. So, there. Starbucks, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> please feel free to go. Uh, we sat down at Starbucks and we just started having this great conversation around what could research really look like to get the public dialogue and the public discourse going around really important topics. And, of course, the Common Core is a very important effort that's going on across the country. It's heated debate. There's a lot of discussion around it. There's resources being dedicated to it. And so John and I were just trying to really figure a way, how can we get this out in a, in a public setting in a way that people can really engage in it? So we actually sort of, we think about it as a little bit of like flipped research, right? We got out the public part of our work in, in this website that we've been talking about. Um, before we did all the peer-reviewed journal articles, which we now have one that's been published by our colleague and ourselves in Spain already, so we have that part of this too. But we really wanted to flip research, education research on its head and get the conversation going. And that's what's so exciting we think about the website, but also able to do podcasts like this and interact with people and have people think out loud and get excited by the work. Great. I want to dig into the data a little bit. You mentioned this in, in the opening, um, that the study was conducted between se September 2013 and September 2014. And in that time, um, the first six months had the 53,000 um, people tweeting about Common Core. And then in the second half of the six months of the study, it increased to 61,000. Um, and then the, the number of tweets also increased from 190,000 to 229,000. That's an increase of 20% uh, or tw almost 21%. So what was happening, uh, particularly in those last six months, uh, that caused the increase in tweets about Common Core? I know it feels like it's, it's a common conversation right now, but that's a big uptick. The thing that's really notable about this conversation is that it's a... It's a voluble and persistent conversation. One of the things that we are very aware of in most Twitter conversations are that they are kind of flash in the pans. They are they get a lot of activity, they have a lot of a, a lot of interaction, but they're shooting stars and they only they only last for a, you know a, a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And so one of the things that's really notable about the Common Core conversation is that it has a lot of volume, a lot of activity, but it's been persistent and um, and pretty high level of activity. And we really see no sign of that slowing down because the associated tests are being administered this spring and they're going to be released in the fall, and that I'm sure will, We'll get um, people commenting about the standards. And then um, particularly if Jeb Bush is nominated, but even through the primary process, the Common Core will continue to be a political issue. So I think at least through the next presidential election, this is going to be a persistent conversation on social media. So basically what you're telling me is you guys chose a topic that would keep you employed for at least another four years, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to build on to build on John's point and and to say, wow, that's great. We've got full employment for a while. We're going to help out the economy. <laughs> to build on the point, I think it's also you know the the we we also have to think about the larger role of social media here, right? Like the 
the role of social media is really changing the way in which people are getting information and they're learning about policies and uh, ice buckets and cat videos and all this other stuff. It's really changing the way in which people are really finding out what's going on. And so one of the things we also notice is that, as John was saying, this is really present in the sort of larger public consciousness around education in a, mul- in a multitude of different kinds of ways. But I think as the as social media gains more um, gains a greater foothold in media just in general, I think you're just going to see more topics like both the Common Core but other really important topics come up and have some staying power. I want to add to what Alan just said is sure. that that hashtag Common Core is just one of several hashtags that people use to represent the standards and all the issues surrounding the standards. Um, but in our preliminary research, we found that it was the, the most frequently used hashtag. So we, we focused on hashtag Common Core because it is the, um, the dominant um, representation on Twitter of the standards movement. Yeah, that's a good call out too. I know I've seen hashtag CCSS, hashtag you know, common standards or hashtag standards as well. So yeah, thanks for, for clarifying that. Um, in looking, I want to talk a little bit more about the data here. And this, this could be your, your personal opinion. And John, I'm, I'm going to come to you with this question. Is that in a random sampling of the tweets that you looked at that used hashtag Common Core, 52% of them, so over half, um, albeit just over half, are informational tweets. Um, and then 18% of those tweets are people who oppose the Common Core. 4% of them are people who support them. Um, or the content is supportive of it. Uh, and then 26% is a whole like cornucopia of other stuff that they're talking about with Common Core. So when I think about how Common Core is currently being discussed in the public sphere, I, I honestly, and I think a lot of other people would feel the same way, is it's losing the battle. It's it, the people who oppose it are speaking really loudly, but this is you know, they are trumped by the amount of information that's out there. So my question is, are those who speak the loudest the ones that are winning the war here? And do you think we can turn that around? There's a lot of components to your question. So let me try and take a couple of things um, before I get to um, the, the bottom line that you just asked about. So first of all, the network of interactions that we examined around the Common Core, really people fell into three groups. And one group was supportive of the standard. The second group were folks who were educators or inside the education system or related to the education system, like Alan and I, and who, who are opposed to the standards. And then the third group, which actually was the most prolific group of the three, were folks from outside of education. They really had no connection to education. They were really co-opting this issue to connect to their followers around other political issues. And so the, this was one of our findings, was that a lot of the conversation on social media, and I think this is true, you know, regardless of what the, the form of the conversation is, that the Common Core debate, so-called, is really not a discussion about the standards themselves. It's a proxy war for other larger disagreements about education. And so we really found lots of conversation about federal intrusion into education, conversation um, around the merits of, of testing, conversation about the role of business interests in education, um, discussions about 
whether the standards were distraction from other equity issues that are integrated into um, educational differences in performance. So I think that there are a whole bunch of conversations going on at the same time. And one thing that's really fascinating about this whole thing is that the Common Core seems to have coalesced all these disparate groups around a um, an issue that they can connect on. Let me conclude this by sort of getting to your question. So that was all preamble to your question. But your question is, you know, how do, do we see this as a losing of the war, so to speak? Um, and, you know, I, I'm of two minds of this because one data set, which is public opinion, would say that that this is, that the Common Core is really declining in support. And so, you know, if you look at public opinion over the time period that we examined and right up until today, you'll see that support for the Common Core has generally declined. It's become increasingly partisan. And so from that metric, I think that the Common Core is becoming a more divisive issue. But if you look at the scorecard in terms of states that continue to legislatively support the Common Core, you'll see that over 40 states are still implementing the Common Core, and there really hasn't been a, um, a marked decline in the number of states who are, who are implementing the standards. So there's been some movements around the assessments, but not the standards themselves. So if you look at that as your scorecard, then you would say that the course is being held. Yeah, and we're gonna, we're actually going to talk a little bit more about the policy makers and who they're listening to here in a second. Um, and John, I want to continue with you for just a little bit longer here. Um, one of the things that you guys do focus on when you talk about the the content of the tweets themselves is the voice that people are using. Well, and you've divided that into two almost two kinds of of speak, and I'm using my air quotes here at, at my desk. Um, do, can you explain those for folks and what each one means? Well, we did a couple of different types of analyses around the language of the tweets, and I, I would say that this was one of the most fun part because once you start to get into sort of the construction of language, um, then you really start to see all kinds of interesting patterns. So one thing that we looked at was um, we we initially noticed two different kinds of, of strains of, of linguistic approaches that people were taking when, with their tweets. One we coined policy speak, which really focuses on logical, rational argumentation that tends to appeal to people's minds and to, um, to policy audiences. The other was a more emotional, visceral approach, which we call political speak, which tended to try and evoke people's gut passions and um, their instincts. And we, we conducted a pretty careful analysis and found that supporters of the standards tended to speak policy speak, and opponents of the standards tended to speak political speak. Which is so interesting to me because, I mean, it's it's not new, right? It's that populist approach of really playing to people's emotion. And um, I won't call out some of the examples you give in the study, but you can definitely see the difference between the two different kinds of speak. So I just wanted to make that clear for folks because it was actually quite interesting. We looked at the metaphors that people used in speaking about the Common Core, and there was a host of interesting linguistic 
um, metaphors that people focused on in terms of the standards being a threat to democracy or a psychological approach to harm children or causing physical harm to kids. And these are linguistic approaches that um, use metaphors in a very effective way. But the thing about metaphors is that metaphors tend to bind people together, but they also blind people to other things. So metaphors both bind and blind people to particular perspectives. In a way, it's like this paradox of the metaphor, right? In, in one hand, it brings something really in sharp focus. On the other hand, it blurs the background, right? And, and I think one of the things that's really powerful about this work and, and overall that we saw is the kinds of frames that people are using to sort of put forth their opinions and their ideas and their beliefs about what's happening. Um, and these, the, the way that the studies and the way the language is used and the frames that people choose to use are really powerful. And as you were saying earlier, Aaron, you can you know go through this section on the metaphors and the tweets, and you really get a very deep and sort of gut-level feeling about the power of some of the language that's being used. I think this is something, as John was saying, that it really jumped out at us as we were sort of digging into these different tweets and the way that people were framing up these issues. Yeah, it's very visceral. I mean, when you read some of these tweets, and I mean, I read a lot. I follow Twitter quite a bit, and Common Core is one of those hashtags that I follow. Um, and some of the things people tweet, you're like, ooh, oh my, maybe I do feel a little differently, or maybe I do want to support a little bit more, or, or whatever it may be. But you're right, it gets right into your gut. Um, and it's really neat to see you guys actually put put some stats to that. Um, so, John, back to you. Who are our policymakers listening to when they are looking at the at all this chatter on social media, or are they listening at all? You mentioned a little bit how some states are still, you know, moving. For, most states are still moving forward with Common Core standards. But have you heard or seen anything that makes you think otherwise? Let me make um, a couple of observations here. One is that when we interviewed some of the uh, prolific participants in hashtag Common Core, they felt that they had the ear of politicians and policymakers because they um, they felt like they were getting responses from those, probably their aides, probably not the politicians themselves, but at least getting responses. And, you know, I was talking about this with a friend of mine, and he said that, you know, when he was on airlines and he had a bad experience and he tweeted it out to his followers, Pretty quickly, the airline responded to him because they were acutely aware that people had these potentially very large networks of colleagues and that this was a reputational issue. So uh, I think the same phenomenon is playing out on Twitter, that this definitely has the ear of policymakers and politicians. And as I go around the country and I talk um, to, I'm a policy researcher, and as I talk to different policy groups about other issues that I'm working on, they're very aware of the conversations that are going on on social media. They may not be active on social media, but they are aware that this is a new and different arena that they have to pay attention to. Even with that, John, I know plenty of people out there who will say Twitter is 100% irrelevant for this kind of conversation, for anything that has to do with a hot, bot, but hot button excuse me, topic. But as a social guy, Alan, do you think that that really holds any water? I really think that the power of this work is showing that actually quite a lot can be conveyed in that short 
uh, burst of characters. And, and more importantly than that, it's the people that other people are connected to that can also be really influenced by this in ways that aren't as visible to us, right? Like, I think part of the work that we're trying to do here is we're trying to make the invisible visible in a way. We're trying to pull out and shine a light on these networks and show how this influence might be moving. And I still think there's a lot more work to do to be done in this space, particularly in looking at the role of social media and the development of policy and how policymakers take this up and who they pay attention to. There's a host of really interesting questions that are associated with this. So with with the exponential size of how many conversations people can be a part of and the number of topics and who sees what within whose networks, no matter where it started, do you think that cooler heads can prevail when we talk about this conversation about Common Core, Alan? Um, when you know a tweet can reach millions of people in a matter of seconds, much faster than say something like a a thirty minute in depth sixty minute segment on TV these days. This is a very interesting question because I one of the things that has become really apparent to us as we've been doing this work too is that. Um, the conversation is growing and expanding even while we speak. And it's, in a way, it's provided like um, an opening and a window that we haven't seen before. So let, let me sort of give you an example. One of the things that we talk about um, in our study is that, in fact, this is one of the first major issues that have come out around education that has social media so attached to it, right? So even when No Child Left Behind came out, arguably one of the biggest policy, uh, educational policies we were wrestling with in the last decade or so, the, the Facebook didn't come out for three years after that. Twitter wasn't out until five years after that. So social media wasn't present in the way that it's present right now. And so I think actually what we're seeing is we're just seeing early of the trajectory of a form of communication and media evolving right before our eyes. So I don't know about this question about cooler heads prevailing necessarily. I think in many ways we're seeing the evolution and the dynamic nature of communication and thoughts and opinions and beliefs and information. It's all being mixed together in really interesting ways that we haven't seen before. And one of the things, at least I think to us, that was really powerful about this is that now any number of people can be commenting in a very public way on policies that affect large swaths of people across the country in ways that they couldn't before, right? And so, to me, what's really most fascinating is seeing how this is going to evolve and change over time. And John, what does that say about social media's role in history in the context of, quote-unquote, winning a side? As we know, different factions are always fighting for people to believe what they have to say. Going back to Madison and the Federalist Papers, we've been talking about the, the efforts of different factions to gain advantage. And the way that I'm viewing it is that that social media is a new terrain for an age-old game and a new set of tools, but the, but the the notion of trying to use different media to gain influence to affect public policy 
is a game that we've seen for a long time and that that this is sort of a new um, permutation of it. But ultimately, this will um, be a transitory um, uh, arena as well. So what exactly are the implications then for the general public as it relates to participating in policymaking discussions? You know, what we've been discussing over the course of doing the project is this is a really, this is a different field. And, and in a way, I think in the past, people were, they were spectators, but they were also, they didn't have any other choices, right? Like, they were told what they should be paying attention to, right? The media leaps were like, okay, this is what you need to be paying attention to. And that isn't the case anymore, right? There are, and, and uh, the work that we see, John, I remember like, we would see tweets being used as evidence on CNN, right? Like, you can readily see any news program using tweets as sort of a form of quote-unquote evidence about what's taking place. And so there's this really interesting interaction going on between professional media, social media, uh, you know, who gets to be a journalist, what does it mean to be a journalist, what does it mean to be a researcher in this space. I just think we're in a really dynamic and interesting time, and that's why I'm really excited that we undertook the project, and it's been certainly some of the best conversations, I think, that we've been having around what this means. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of implications, I think, as a result of this study, and so um, I, the reason I wanted to have you guys on is to definitely just whet people's appetite just a teeny tiny bit, so they go and check out that website. Again, it is hashtag commoncore.com, um, and a big thanks to you, John and Alan, for joining the show and, and breaking it down for us. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks a lot, Aaron. I really appreciate it. On the episode, we talked a lot about the interactivity of the website, hashtag commoncore.com. And one thing that John and Alan definitely wanted me to share with everybody out there, too, is not only can you play around with what they did, but you can also learn about the methods they used in their research. You can also reach out to John and Alan at their Twitter handles. John Supovitz is at jsupo, J-S-U-P-O, and Alan is at A-J Daily, D-A-L-Y-2. As always, thanks for listening to our show, Education on Tap. A reminder that you can subscribe to us on both SoundCloud and iTunes. All you have to do is put your little fingers on a keyboard and type in Education on Tap in the search bar. You can also find us on Twitter at Teach for America, hashtag Education on Tap. And you can also email me at educationontap at teachforamerica.org. I love to hear the ideas you guys have for interviews and topics, so keep them coming. And of course, you can always tweet at me directly at Aaron Mofo French. Until next time, have a great weekend, y'all. 